want you to take your Bibles and let's locate Ephesians 3, would you? As you're turning there, consider this. What if I were to say to you this morning, I have a surprise for you. Now, while you wouldn't know what the surprise is, you would know something. You would know that it's not a surprise to me, correct? Because that's how surprises work, duh, right? It's a surprise to the person receiving the surprise, but we all know that the one giving the surprise knows what it is. And typically, after you receive a surprise, you realize there's been a lot of intentionality. And so it really kind of seems to raise the value and worth of the surprise, doesn't it? That's kind of how surprises work. I watched this in my marriage. You know, I, I make no bones about it. I think romance is spelled S-U-R-P-R-I-S-E in a good way, all right, guys? No sudden bad surprises, okay? But intentional, thought-out surprises, man, it's, it works wonders for romance. When we were engaged, uh, a lot of you know the story. I won't tell the whole thing, but we were engaged at Fulton County Stadium in 1988, Julie and I were. Here's a picture of that stadium, uh, and on the far back wall is the matrix board or the jumbotron. I'm not sure what they call them now, but that's where I asked Julie to marry me. And uh, it surprised her, but it took a lot of planning on my part. And uh, we almost had some major hiccups. We were late to the game. I couldn't get the ring out of my pocket in time and she couldn't find the matrix board. And so I'm thinking it's going to disappear before she even knows what I'm here to, to do, you know, and, but it worked out good. On our sixth anniversary, I bought her a special ring and I hid it in a little basket of French fries. It was in some restaurant in Atlanta. And that, that sounds kind of odd, but I didn't want to put it in a hamburger. <laughs> and I didn't want to put it in a salad, but I wanted to surprise her. And I thought, well, I don't want to pull a ring out of my pocket again. I just didn't know what to do. So I thought, I'll just throw it in the fries. So I sneaked to the kitchen. I said, I'm going to the restroom. I go to the kitchen. I tell the, the guy, hey, could you put this in the fries for the lady out there? And he does, and she's eating, and, and she's not seeing it. I'm like, uh, you know, don't eat it, okay? <laughs> Accidentally, right? Um, on our 20th year anniversary, I surprised her with a trip to Maine in Bar Harbor. And so it, those are all fun surprises, and we, I kind of planned them and gave them to her, and uh, they were surprised to her, but when she got them, she knew I was aware of them. Now, they weren't without their hiccups, as I explained a few of them. In Bar Harbor, we had a great time until the last day. And on the way back, I, I was trying to save some money. And so I, I booked what I thought was a good deal at a hotel on our way back before we flew home. And it was like the Roach Motel. <laughs> and so even in our best intentions, sometimes I'm always tripping over myself, you know? I mean, when we, when we walked in, she's like, I, I don't think I'm staying here. I, I'm taking my socks off. I'm not getting this. She's like, none of this is going to work. And I'm like, honey, I, I'm not sure what to do. It's like midnight. We're just trying to make it till the next day to the airport. And so we have all kind of hiccups and some of our surprises. My point in telling you this is to make sure you understand that surprises are surprises to those who receive them. And so they, they're often like seen in, in, a, in a way like, wow, this is worth a lot. It took some intentionality. And so we have a, a range of emotion, but, but good things happen when we see a surprise. And Ephesians 3 lays out for us what I think I'm comfortable calling the divine surprise. Now, I'm not going to tell you what that is yet. But I'm comfortable saying that what we're going to see unfold for us is a divine surprise, which means, based on what I've shared so far, 
it will shock us and astound us and we'll see worth and value and intentionality, perhaps like we've never seen it before, but it's not surprising God. Amen, church? And you'll see what I mean just in a moment. So Ephesians 3, I think what I want to do first is use our lab to show you a larger picture and then a smaller picture. And then I just want to make some observations about them. So you're at Ephesians 3, right? Ephesians 3 is a very interesting chapter because the real point of the chapter is a prayer that Paul prays. But it doesn't begin till verse 14. However, I think he meant to talk about it right off the bat. But the divine surprise was still in his mind because he kind of relays information about the divine surprise in chapters two and one. He's talking about it continuously. We've been talking about it continuously here in church in this series. And so I think when he gets to chapter three, he's kind of ready to move on to this prayer, but he's so overwhelmed by the, by the shocking nature of this divine surprise that he interrupts himself. Do you see verse one? Notice what he does here. He says, for this reason, I. So he's moved, he's, you kind of sense he's moving on, don't you? But you'll notice at the end of verse one, there's this dash signifying an interruption. And between verses two and 13, you have what I call uh, inspired interruption. Notice in verse 14, you have the words for this reason. You see that? So you kind of sense, okay, Paul is about to say something, but he's just so overwhelmed and excited for this truth that's been revealed to him that he just kind of talks more about it now. And then finally in verse 14, he gets back to it. It's this section right here. It's 2 to 13 that I want to look at this week and, and then the week after Easter, which I think reveals to us a lot about the divine surprise. If you're, if you're tracking with me, if you're, if you're staying up, just nod your head. Everybody with me? Now, the, the real meat of the divine surprise is in verse 6. So let's take a, a closer look at verse 6, can we? Here's the divine surprise. It's called a mystery in the Bible. You won't find the words, oops, you won't find the words divine surprise in the Bible. You find the word mystery four times in this section, 2 to 13. Some people use the phrase open secret. You can look at it as if something was formerly concealed, but now revealed. So however you want to see it, I'm very content with the phrase divine surprise. Mystery is a good word. I wouldn't argue with the word the translators chose. I think it may lack a tad of the um, um, uh, emotion. Does that make sense? Like, wow, this, this is not a mystery like we're scared of. This is not like a mystery thriller or something that we're to be afraid of. This is, it's something that was formerly concealed. It's now been revealed, and it's a beautiful truth. It's a divine surprise to us. And so he calls it the mystery, and here's what it is. I love the plainness of this verse. If the verses 2 to 13 are an inspired interruption, here's an inspired definition of the divine surprise or the mystery or the open secret. We'll just underline it. It's that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise. Now, let me show you something. All those words in English are basically three words in the original language. I'll circle them for you. This one word, 
That's one word, and that's one word. They're all words that are prefixed with the idea of, the, of our word co. So Paul here is saying, here is the mystery that Gentiles are now co-heirs. He uses the word fellow heirs. They're now co-members of the same body. In fact, here's something really intriguing. The word for members of the same body is susoma. Soma is the Greek word for body. Paul adds the prefix susu or sum, means together or co. This word really isn't anywhere else in the Bible. And from what I can tell in red, it's not found anywhere in any extra biblical literature. There is a thought that Paul may have made this word up, which I like Paul for that. You know what I'm saying? Just kind of making up words that fit the moment. But he gets the privilege of saying he has an inspired word that he's made up, right? So fellow wares or co-wares, co-members, and then partakers or, or co-partakers. And remember, the, the surprise is really that this is what the Gentiles are receiving. It's, it's not a surprise that the Jews receive this. The surprise is that it's now in one body. You mean we're on uh, equal footing? You mean we get the same thing they got? The promises, the inheritance, all those things come to the Gentiles, the former outsiders? Yes. And do not underestimate the shock this was in the first century. You recall, anything less than a Jew often was referred to as a dog. Whether you were a Samaritan or some other kind of Gentile, you were not looked upon as, uh, you know, by the Jews as something of great worth. The Pharisees struggled. They violently fought against those who were not of their sect. And Paul here is writing, here's the mystery. Here's the divine surprise. Here's what God had formerly concealed but is now revealing. Here's the open secret. That is not just a Jewish thing any longer. Gentiles, you're in the same family. And all of you should say, hallelujah, amen. So here's the divine surprise. We'll come out of our lab. Just jot this down. The divine surprise is a united church. And let me just be very clear and frank here. It's not just a church. It's a united church. That's the incredible surprise that you know, brings our mouth from ear to ear, but it's not a surprise to God. He's always intended it to be that way. And that's what he begins to unpack in these first six verses. More truth about this united church, this divine surprise. That's not a surprise to him, but surely is to us. Can I just share with you three things from these first six verses? Travis will cover the last six or seven the week after Easter. Let me just kind of show you three things about this divine surprise in these first six verses that I think will just continue to escalate the joy in your heart. Watch this. Yes, for his church, but for the fact that it's united. Because this is a needed message in our culture. I'm just gonna push pause here and share this. Our culture, our society is trying to find unity in all of its differences, and it cannot happen. Differences do not contain the power to unite people. 
I share more about this in an upcoming podcast. Um, I'm not sure which Tuesday it's scheduled for, but I talk logically about our country. Uh, it's, it's a mistake is we're trying to find unity in all of our differences. Differences can only serve for two purposes, to celebrate or to show compassion. And they're both worthy purposes. We hear or see something, we're like, we celebrate that or we have compassion for it. That is, they can't unite us. And this is a major flaw within our, our, our civic culture, we'll call it. That we're trying to elevate everyone's differences and wonder why we can't get along. Because differences can't unite. The only one that can unite is Christ. We discussed this last week. And so the church must be the shining star in our culture showing how so many different people can come together. It's not by focusing on our differences. It's by focusing on the one who is uniting us. It's Jesus Christ. That's what we share in common, the gospel, God's son. And again, it doesn't mean that we don't recognize differences, but we don't maximize or even minimize. I would say this, we neutralize differences because everybody's got them, Right? So I don't make yours more than mine or mine more than yours. We just neutralize them. What we do is we focus on the reason for our unity. And that is a person, Jesus Christ. And this passage, I mean, it should just invigorate the church to living in a unified way in a culture that is so splintered and will remain splintered as long as we try to find unity in the wrong avenue. So here's three things he says about this united church. First of all, he says it was personally costly. Look at verse one. Would you circle the word prisoner in verse one? Paul says here, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Did you catch what he's saying there? He's not blaming the Gentiles because that is why he was in prison from a human perspective. His goal and job was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so as he did, the Pharisees were upset. The Jewish leaders were upset. They did all they could to stop Paul, including imprisoning him. But he didn't say, I'm in prison because of the Gentiles. It's your fault. Notice he says it's on their behalf, which is kind of a positive way. But he says here too, it's actually, he's in prison for Christ. Paul knows full well, this is his role in order to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. You say, how does Paul know that? Acts chapter nine, verses 15 and 16. Here's what Paul was told on the day of his conversion. He was told this through Ananias, but how would this be for your, your first job assignment on the day you get hired, right? The Lord said to him, now remember, he tells Ananias this, but Ananias tells Paul, who was then Saul. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must, say it with me, church, suffer for the sake of my name. Imprisonment was one of the ways God would use Paul to get the gospel to the Gentiles. Can I give you one small example? Paul's in prison, perhaps, uh, in a city like Philippi. Who's running the prison there? Who's overseeing his cell? Who's locking his wrists and feet? Perhaps is a Gentile. Perhaps there's Gentile guards or Gentile prison keepers when he's singing those songs out loud. The earthquake occurs. Uh, do you follow what I'm saying? 
There are people who heard the gospel. We're not sure they're all Gentiles, but there are people who no doubt heard the gospel that would have never heard it had Paul not been in prison. And so because Paul's mission was to take the gospel to the Gentiles, there were times that those Gentiles were in places that he could only access if he was in prison. So God said, Paul, there are things you're gonna go through, including imprisonment, that I need you to do just because that's how the Gentiles will hear. And Paul never once complains. He doesn't blame. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. You know, he often referred to himself as a slave. And he said, I'm in this role on behalf of the Gentiles. Don't you love the way Paul did not wince at, at the costly nature of God's united church? I'm enthralled by the way Paul never backs away from the way it would cost him to be part of this divine surprise. I would remind you, by way of application, it will cost you to be a part of a united church, God's divine surprise. Just, just kind of let that weigh on you. It will cost you. Sometimes I overhear people discussing their schedules and they bemoan the fact that, oh, I've got to... I got to serve there that Sunday and oh man. And it's like it's an inconvenience and some other want to say, oh, that's actually exactly what it is. It's an inconvenience, yes. It won't be anything less than that. It will take intentional prioritizing for you to make that happen at church because it is an inconvenience probably. Does that make sense? It's like we almost expect church to kind of fit into our schedules without any problem. I don't know if that's actually the way it should be. There probably is a cost to serving to giving, to being involved, to working at relationships, to being committed to a small group. It will actually cost you. And if it doesn't, perhaps you're not investing at the right level into God's divine surprise. Uh, by the way, the divine surprise was costly for Jesus. Acts 20, 28. He purchased it, and the word it there refers to his church. He purchased it with his own blood. I've yet to bleed for this church. I doubt any of you have. Jesus did every drop, paid for it with his life, and purchased it to himself. So, so just understand, this divine surprise was personally costly for Paul. and He's following in the good footprints, isn't he? So can, can we just agree that next time church seems to kind of be that's, that's going to be hard to do. That's going to be a little difficult. That's going to cost. Smile and say, yes, it probably should. The divine surprise ought to be, to some degree, personally costly. I like what he says in the next several verses, that the divine surprise was incrementally revealed. This is the second thing I want you to notice here about this. Let me read some phrases here for you from verses 2 to 5 of Ephesians 3. Here's how Paul begins his interruption. He says, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. The word stewardship there is the word plan or the word dispensation. So Paul received a special type of, of uh, responsibility to make sure that the Gentiles were aware of their inclusion into God's church. And he says, this mystery was made known to me by revelation, meaning inspired by God. 
as I have written briefly, and then he says, when you read this, he's probably here referring to the other previous parts of Ephesians. I don't think he's referring here to the Old Testament. Paul didn't write the Old Testament or parts of it. Some think it may refer to that. I think he's referring here to the previous parts of Ephesians when he was explaining the the church and the hostility that was killed between Jew and Gentile and how Christ gave us all access into one body. He's now revisiting this. He's, he's just got great reason to continue to talk about this wonderful news. And so he says, I was given this special job to reveal to you as I've written already. And I want you to perceive verse four, my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, So something has been concealed based on that, right? Look at the next phrase. As it has now been revealed to his holy prophets, excuse me, holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And so the real real gist of verses two through five is this. Something was said earlier, but not much. It It was more concealed than revealed. But now with Paul's special job of making sure this news gets to Gentiles, it's now been revealed in a special way, divine revelation. His job is to proclaim it. And so we understand that what God's saying here is there is an incremental revelation occurring in regards to the church. But church, I want you to hear this. It's not incremental to God. It is to you, right? Yeah, we see the Old Testament being about God's people, the Jews, and then there are non-Israelites grafted in at times, Rahab, Ruth. We see that periodically. But then we see Pentecost occurring. And we see Peter going to Cornelius. And then we see Paul preaching to the Gentiles and begin to rise. Oh, wow. It's always been God's intention to include Gentiles. It was just done in an incremental, timed fashion. Let me share with you some verses out of Romans that I think will be very encouraging to you. Look at Romans 16 here. These are just what I would call corollary verses that would accent the fact that this is Not something that's a surprise to God. This has always been God's plan. It's just done in an incremental way. Romans 16. Now to him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Christ Jesus, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. Do you catch that? He's speaking there of of the scriptures. What the Holy Spirit, of course, this phrase, this, this uh, passage, Ephesians 3, talks about how it was done by the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit carried men along, Peter said, inspired them to write the Holy Scriptures. Much of that is about the inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of God. So there is now one people of God, one dwelling place for God. And it includes both Jew and Gentile. This has been done and revealed in an incremental way. Look at this next verse. It kind of speaks to the same point. Colossians chapter one. Paul says here, he was made a minister according to the stewardship from God. There's that same idea that he's got this special job. It was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So when you think about this concept, I just want one word to kind of blanket you. And that's this word, confidence. You see, often uh, we, we, we think something's new and so we're timid of it, aren't we? Not everyone's an early adopter, right? <laughs> Some folks don't test, don't test anything that's beta. We're like, I'll let it run through a few iterations and then we'll check it out. 
That's not me, by the way. I'll take every beta you can find and try it. But not everyone's that way. But don't think that about the church. The church wasn't a, a new thing on the horizon. It wasn't a new thing to God. It wasn't a new concept. And this is one of the reasons that I struggle with some of the ways that the church age is seen in some charts. And this won't probably affect many of you here because many of you probably haven't seen this. But there is a system of thought in which the church age is kind of parenthetically set. There's a parenthesis on one side and the other side, and it kind of shows that this is kind of an insertion. And I think what they mean by that is maybe is that's how we see it. I'm good with that. If they're saying from our perspective, the church seems like a parenthesis. Yeah, maybe from our perspective, it seems like it's a surprise to us. But can I say to you, there's no parenthesis with God. God didn't find out in the gospels like, well, they rejected Jesus. What will I do now? I'll just add a thing called the church age and I'll put in parentheses and we'll be good. And then I'll get back to my plan A later. Now, no offense to those who are listening and may think that there's probably a better way to showcase that. If what you mean is, hey, it, was, it seemed that way to us, man, we're good. But can we just all agree based on what these scriptures say? And by the way, I could show you uh, 2 Samuel, I could show you Psalm 18, I could show you the book of Isaiah, which speak of a united family of God of Jew and Gentile. It's, it's not something that surprised God. It's been incrementally revealed, but it's been sovereignly planned. So I want that to breed confidence in you that you're not part of something just thought about last night. You're not joining something. You're not a member of something. You're not finding unity in someone that, that just came up you know, a few weeks ago that some man thought of. You're part. You're a member of the body of Christ and God before the foundation of the world has planned to unite Jew and Gentile in that body, though he incrementally revealed it. And that brings me great confidence in the church. Notice the last thing about this divine surprise, would you? It says here that we are fellow heirs, same body members and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The last phrase of verse six, letting me know that this divine surprise is exclusively accessed. And let's say it clear and loud, can we? This divine surprise, entrance into the church is exclusively accessed. Call me narrow-minded. Call me, you know, one-focused. I didn't write it. I'm just delivering the news. And the Bible says that to be part of the united church, to be a member of the one body, you must come through Jesus and the gospel. Now let's talk about that for a minute. Because in one sense, they're one and the same. One is the man and one is the means. So Jesus Christ is the God-man, God among us. He's the gospel personified. He's the gospel incarnated in living, breathing color, flesh and bones. John would say the word was made flesh and he dwelled among us. But the gospel is actually what he did. It's the means by which, by which we um, access God. It's the work of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so we, we embrace the man 
and the means. We embrace Christ and what he did. This is not just a good idea. It's not just a, you know, like, well, let's put this into our constitution or bylaws or our, uh, you know, beliefs. This is essential to being a part of the body of Christ. You must come through Christ to be in Christ. And you must believe in what Christ did as Jesus Christ. Now, to clarify some things here, Jesus owned this personally by analogy and announcement. He would often say in the New Testament during his years on the earth, he would say, I am the door. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, many things Jesus said were exclusive to him alone. He was the one door. He was the one gate. So it was a, it was a stark message, wasn't it? There was no other way. There's not another fold. There's not another gate. There's a narrow way. He also did this by announcement, John 14. When he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and then he announced this, no one comes to the Father but through me. So we don't have the room as followers of Jesus and preachers do not have the the freedom to say there are other ways. There aren't. Paul here makes it clear. We're members, and this is writing to Gentiles. So this united church, it's possible only through Christ Jesus and the gospel. So let me ask you to examine your birth certificate into God's family. Let me ask you to inspect your entry card, maybe your spiritual fob. Is it marked with Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection as the only way you get in? Is that clear on your spiritual birth certificate, your spiritual fob, your entry pass, whatever you want to use? Is that what you have? Because if you don't have that, in the plainest of terms, you're not in. You can give this church a million dollars. It doesn't make you part of the family of God. You can get wet every month in baptism. It does not make you a part of the family of God. You can attend for 10 years without missing a single Sunday. You can pray for me as your pastor, our elders, our deacons, our small group leaders. You can put us first on your prayer list. You can come to every prayer gathering. You can sit on the front row. You can lead a small group. None of those things make you a part of the family of God. There's no access through us or anyone else in this room. There's access into God's family through one person, Jesus Christ, and what he did for us, his death, burial, and resurrection. And when one puts their faith in that, when one says, only in Jesus am I a part of God's family, then God takes them out of darkness and he puts them into light, out of bondage into freedom, from death to life. God does that because of his son, and your response to him in faith. That's the only way. Could I be more clear? I don't say that 
and any type of presumption or arrogance, I want to be crystal clear so that you understand something. We don't want confusion because your eternal destiny matters. And I want you to be this clear with your neighbors and relatives and friends. Always be polite, be sincere, be kind. Yes, but please, church, don't be confusing. Let us be clear that the divine surprise, yes, it's, it's personally costly, it's incrementally revealed, but it is exclusively accessed only in and through Christ and what he has accomplished in his death and resurrection. That alone is what births new family members into God's family. And I just want to make sure that all of you are using the right, can we call it grid or rubric, to test your salvation, to examine yourself, to see if you're in the faith. And if you're not, whether you're here live or listening and watching, right there in your seat, right there where you're listening and watching from, would you ask God to save you through Jesus? And instantaneously, by responding in faith, God will do exactly that. He will save you by his grace and he will put you into this beautiful body of his which contains Jew and Gentile. He'll unite you with his son and with all those who are heirs as well. So those are three things about this divine surprise. Three things that, that we now see that perhaps we didn't see before. Maybe we did. Maybe we've been reminded of them. But remember, none of this surprised God, right? Surprises work that way, don't they? They, they show us the value and the intentionality. And so we, we have a greater appreciation, a, a, a bigger understanding. But of course, this was not a surprise to God. This is what God has always been doing, right, church? And so let's understand, really, here's our takeaway today. Here's the thing I want you to kind of put in your pocket and take home with you. That really, the divine surprise or this united church, it's always been God's plan A. Man, that, and that just brings comfort and reassurance to my heart. It, it helps me to appreciate the body more deeply. That a united church in Christ has always been God's plan A. And here's my prayer. That it will be just as much of a shock in the 21st century as it was in the first. I mean, can we just agree, would this not be an astounding uh, surprise to our society and culture? Would it not be a beautiful oasis for those who are always feeling they have to measure up and highlight their differences and mark how, you know, do they, do they check the right boxes? In the middle of that type of confusion, what an oasis the church can be that we're united, not in anything about you or me, but in everything about Christ. So I'm praying that in this 21st century, the world will be stunned by how unified Christ's church is, that we actually love the fact that we stand on equal footing. So let me close by just actually surprising you with one more thing. Because I actually do have a surprise for you. I think you know this, but I think you've forgotten this. 
You actually are on equal footing with those who've come before you. I mean, like the, like the big dogs, like Abraham. Like, really? Like, like Peter, Matthew, Paul, Joseph. Say, Todd, what are you saying? Yeah, this is a surprise. Look what Peter would write about this very concept in 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, and with this I close. He says he's writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Whoa! Who's he writing this to? Well, he's writing to those who were dispersed in the persecution of Acts 8, probably over a period of years. And where did they disperse to? They dispersed to Gentile areas. And over a period of years, those Jews no doubt saw many Gentiles come to faith. And so Peter now is writing to both Jew and Gentile in these dispersed areas. And what does he say to Gentile readers who are now living with, interacting with these Jewish believers? He says, hey guys, I'm writing you a letter. Yeah, to those of you, those of you who have a faith of equal standing with ours. Really? So the faith that I have is the same faith that Moses had? You got it. You're in the same family. That's a surprise, isn't it? Now, I know not technically. You knew that. But have you ever thought about that? You ever considered the reality that is ours because of Christ? That it's one new man with no hostility. Christ killed that. And so we are on equal footing together by the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So all credit and glory and praise goes to Jesus for putting all of us in the same family, standing on one foundation. That's what you're part of. That's the church. That's the dwelling place of God. Man, I'm overwhelmed and overjoyed that he put me in it. Aren't you? Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.